Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the book of Acts and thank you that we can study that this week. We pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit you would inspire us to be better servants of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, my path into full-time ministry, full-time Bible teaching ministry, wasn't standard, and I'm not sure that I would recommend it to everybody. So I did one year here at college in the Bible and Missions course, and after then six months at the training college for CMS at St Andrews Hall, uh, we headed off with three small children to Zaire. On arrival, my first gig uh, was to gather with the CMS missionaries and to teach the new syllabus uh, for the Bible schools to all the Congolese Bible school teachers. First of all, I had to write that in Swahili. Now, I'd been to uh, Tanzania on the way to Zaire and we'd learnt Swahili for six months. And so we arrived in Zaire with this uh, smattering of Swahili and uh, straight into writing a syllabus in Swahili and then teaching the course that I'd just written to the gathered Bible school teachers. Well, you can imagine my arrow prayer at the time as uh, one that I've used many times since. Lord, I hope you're not, you know what you're doing because quite frankly, I don't have a clue. Change is scary, and new situations are scary, and we humans have a finite capacity to deal with new things. Moving from the known to the unknown makes us uncomfortable, and too many new things, too many unknowns make us quite anxious. And I'm sure all of us have experienced that. In this year's Mission Awareness Week, we are thinking about moving from the known to the unknown, because that is what God expects of us in mission. We have a known God and a known gospel, but God expects us to take this known gospel about this known God to unknown people in unknown situations and unknown cultures. In our three talks this week in chapel, we'll be looking together at three sections in the book of Acts where three big jumps into the unknown take place as the gospel moves out following the Acts chapter 1 verse 8 prediction by Jesus that the gospel would start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea, Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. And this week we want to learn some principles that will help in our work for the Lord in mission. So today we're starting in quite an unexpected place, the beginning. What was it like for those very first Christians to go from the known world of Judaism to the unknown of following Jesus. What was it like for these very first Christians to cross cultures? 
We're going to be covering a, a fair bit of territory in a short time in this talk, chapters 1 to 8 of Acts, but we'll concentrate on Acts 2, 42 to 47, and Acts 4, 32 to chapter 5, verse 16, before dashing across the line in a few moments' time at the beginning of chapter 8. Before we get stuck into chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 42, a little bit of context, historical context, is useful. At Pentecost, we know from chapter 2, we heard in the reading this morning, that 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus, or were Jews. Sure, some of them had had the experience of traveling with Jesus during his earthly ministry. But before Pentecost, in chapter 1, verse 15, it tells us there were 120 believers. So the majority of those 3,000 that put their faith in Jesus were probably in Jerusalem for the Passover feast from all over the known world. One minute they're Jews, and then they hear the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. For these new converts, their life in Judaism up to this point meant that almost everything was in the known basket. Their identity, for instance, they were Jews. They knew what a relationship with God meant. They knew as Jews what a relationship with other people meant, with the world. They had a very known way of life. And the law, together with rabbinic interpretation, gave their life shape with definite boundaries. But now, Peter preaches. They have faith in Jesus, a dramatic filling with the Holy Spirit. And now what? They've moved from the totally known to what? What's this new life like? What would continue from the past? What would be new? We'll turn now to the summary passages, the short one in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and what is best thought of as an extended summary passage in Acts 4, 32 to 5, 16. So looking at chapter 2, 42 to 47, open your Bibles. Luke presents this new group of Christians as the new Israel. They're unified through belief in Jesus as the Christ, and now they are filled with the Holy Spirit. As a community, they gather together, and we have a list here of what they did when they gathered. I'll read verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Verse 42 lists these things. First of all, they listened to the apostles' teaching. They had already believed in the gospel, and now the Holy Spirit is giving them a thirst to know more from the apostles. Next, they had fellowship. Verse 44 and 45 spells that out a bit more. And all who believed were together and all had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. They experienced fellowship. The Holy Spirit brought unity. Well, it says they broke bread in their homes, verse 42, and then uh, in verse 46. Together, and they broke bread in their homes and received their food with glad and generous hearts. Through the Holy Spirit, as they gathered together, eating together, which is the sign of unity in all cultures, the Holy Spirit uh, helped them to invest in their relationships. And then finally, in, in verse 42 and 47, it says that they prayed to God and they praised God. At this point, it seems that they were still going to the temple every day as a group. But through the Holy Spirit, we can see that this new Israel were forming a, a relationship with each other, but also with God, praising God and praying to God. And note the words in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. They were in awe of God at the display of God's power through his Holy Spirit. That, it seems, is what the function, or one of the functions, of the story of Ananias and Sapphira is in chapter 5. A demonstration of the power of the Spirit and that this new community of believers were to take it very, very seriously. And then finally, chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It seems that they weren't just gathering. There are actually some, it seems probably the apostles, out telling the story to others on the outside, and outsiders were believing in Christ and joining the fellowship. But note the effect that the Holy Spirit was having on this new Israel. There was a gathering where there was teaching, fellowship, building each other up, growing in their relationship with Jesus and with the Father. Plus, at the same time, there was a reaching out, a witnessing. In the longer version, in chapters 4 and 5, we see this clearly. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they all had everything in common. You can see there the gathering. But then in verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and grace was upon them all. We have the witnessing. And again in uh, verse chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. There in that one verse we see both the witnessing, the reaching out, and the gathering as they met together in the temple precincts. And the result of 
this circular thing of gathering and teaching and worshipping plus reaching out and bringing more people in in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that it, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter came by that his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, from one point of view, the Holy Spirit was causing the, the new community to both look outwards in evangelism and at the same time to look inwards as they gathered. But another way of looking at this ministry activity is that it's all part of the same thing. Jesus, through his spirit, had simply taken this community over. And their activity was all quite similar, depending on the audience. You see, telling the mighty saving works of God in Christ when God is the audience is called worship. Telling the mighty saving works of God in Christ when the gathered community is the audience is called teaching or building up. And telling the mighty saving works of God in Christ when outsiders are the audience is called evangelism. Same message, different audiences. Jesus had simply taken over this community. They were Jesus-focused. They were completely focused on the gospel. The only extra thing they needed for evangelism, more than they did for worship or building each other up, was boldness in the face of increasing opposition and persecution. And that's exactly what they prayed for and received in chapter 4, verses 29 and 31. We won't read that now. So that's the picture of the first Christians moving from the known of Judaism to the unknown of the new Israel. But there's still one more step into the unknown that Christ will require of his church through the power of the Spirit. Remember chapter 1, verse 8? Remember that ends of the earth thing? It's been hinted at through these chapters that while the gathered community, while this new community are gathering and reaching out, there's still something else on the horizon to happen. The work isn't finished yet. Remember, Jesus wants the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 39, Peter says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I think the, the early Christian church knew that the gospel was for the nations and not just for the Jews and certainly not just for the Jews in Jerusalem. So we know that God's going to do something to get the gospel out of Jerusalem and send it out. But what's that going to be? And then in chapter 8, it happens. The Jerusalem bubble bursts. Paul, or Saul, 
leads a persecution of the church in the wake of Stephen's death, with the result that the Christians are scattered. In chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Right there, the first missionaries are sent out. Quite accidentally, by the way. Accidentally, that is, by the church. But we'll see later that it was quite deliberate by the Lord Christ, who is Lord of his mission. But hang on, now we've got three things. We've got the gathering for the teaching and the fellowship. We've got the reaching out for witnessing. But now we've got a third thing, this scattering, sending out the gospel into new places and cultures. This week we're going to be thinking about how much this third phenomenon here, this scattering effect, is just a one-off. Or is this to be the pattern of the spirit-empowered gospel ministry taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Well, guess what I think, shortly. So what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, gospel ministry. Gospel ministry in all its expressions are a natural consequence of being thoroughly taken over by Jesus. It sounds obvious, but when the church is totally convinced of the truth of the gospel and teaches the gospel to its people, both local ministry and what we call mission will inevitably happen. Second, we tend to underestimate what a step into the unknown it is for people to become Christians. It is a complete culture change for someone to come into the church, even if they're joining a church with people from their own cultural background. If they are crossing multiple cultural barriers to enter a church at once, perhaps not only religious, but also ethnic, regional, linguistic, that's even more challenging. Just like those first Christians, every time someone becomes a Christian, there is a new identity, a new worldview, a new vocabulary, new relationships. Everything is new. In Congo, family and clan relationships are fundamentally important to everything in their culture. You can't understand anything that's going on in that culture without understanding family and clan. You can imagine the shock one day. I was teaching from Ephesians chapter 2. And in, in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about the unity that believers have together as each of them individually put their faith in Christ. And I preached that day and gave an example that the relationship you have with a fellow believer is now closer than any non-Christian relative in your family. Even if they're your biological twin and they're not a Christian, another Christian is actually closer to you than your non-Christian biological twin. Well, that caused a stir in Congo. People were stunned, but they acknowledged the truth. The Christian gospel changes us 
and it is a culture change. We know that every time someone is saved by Christ that a miracle has happened. Part of that miracle is the new Christian is able to cross cultural barriers, join a church and start to live as a Christian. While this is a work of the Holy Spirit, we must be aware of it and make the path as easy as possible. We'll think more of that as the week continues. And lastly, as we finish today's talk, I want to leave you with the idea that whatever ministry we do or are involved in, it is cross-cultural. We are crossing cultures with the gospel every time we preach and someone comes to the Lord. We are taking the known gospel to the unknown that they might be known by God.